This podcast is brought to you by The JCK Show, the premier destination to discover what's new, next, and innovative in the retail jewelry landscape. Be there when the industry reunites at the Venetian Resort and Sands Expo, August 27th through August 30th. Visit jcklasvegas.com to register today. Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamalski talk with Alan Revere, award-winning jewelry designer, author, and founder and former director of the now-closed Revere Academy of Jewelry Design. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, editor-in-chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles. And I'm with... Rob Bates, uh, news director of JCK and JCK Online, calling in from hot and humid New York, New York City. The rain stopped, I hope. Those visions of the subways were terrifying. That was scary, yeah. That was creepy. I mean, do you feel torrential just walking around the city or being in your apartment looking out? I've been, you know, sequestered here for so long. Your apartment becomes like an island, kind of tune out the outside world. Meaning you weren't braving the floods on on the subways? No, I was. I did at one point because I had to pick up my son. But in general, no. But I have to say, I don't know if you're going to send me one. The July JCK, I'm very excited to get it. Oh, well, gosh, it's funny that you even ask. Usually, I guess you just get it in the office. But given that we haven't been in the office... I just got my copies yesterday. It is our one and only print issue of 2021. It looks fantastic. I mean, huge props to Peter Yates, our creative director, and Freda Taven, our photo editor. We've got a gorgeous model on the cover. It's all about the show, the JCK show, which is most people know, now taking place in late August. We've got a beautiful pearl, still life. If you haven't seen that issue, please email us if you want a copy or, you know, we'll figure out a way to get it to you. It feels like a real weighty, substantive contribution to the jewelry conversation in 2021. (laughs) That doesn't sound too promotional. Well, let's let's get to our guest. So I have a little a little ramp up here to introduce him. Many, many of you listening will know of him. And I want to be a little punny or a little play on his name. You might get it. He's a revered jewelry maker, master goldsmith, master jeweler who has taught many, many people in our industry how to make jewelry, how to make beautiful jewelry. He is a past president of the American Jewelry Design Council, a founder of the Contemporary Design Group, award-winning author, and not to mention the founder of the Revere Jewelry Making Academy in San Francisco, now retired, Alan Revere. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Thank you very much, Victoria and and Rob. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. It's fantastic to have you. You're a name that comes up in a lot of different conversations kind of randomly when I'm talking to jewelers in this business. Many, many have had a connection to you, your school, the the contemporary design group. So it feels like you're probably one of those like six degrees of Alan Revere in this business. Yeah, I've been lucky. I've I've met a lot of wonderful people along the line, and it's been a, a wonderful ride, really. I bet. So you're retired, living in a lovely. I just looked at it on the map to remind myself of where it was. San Rafael, in just north of San Francisco. Is that technically Marin, or is that another county? No, it's it's in Marin. Yeah, I left the city and live in Marin in a beautiful place. It's Lucas Valley. I live in a wonderful mid-century modern home. It's just exquisite. I'm having the time of my life. Oh my goodness. You don't miss San Francisco or, or the hustle and bustle. That must feel like a different era. 
I lived and worked in San Francisco for the last 20 years, and it was a bustling, thriving metropolis of creativity and activity and all kinds of stuff. And, and now, unfortunately, it is nothing like that. You know, the streets are pretty quiet, inventories are low, and I feel like the timing was perfect for us to get out of town. But I'm enjoying it. I have a little studio in, in my house and a lot of contact with the outside world. Through just being online or on Zooms or, or so on? or All of that. All of that. I've been pretty isolated. You know, retirement, it feels right. I don't leave here very much. We have a beautiful garden and uh, it just came at the same time as the pandemic. So it's all working for me. Gosh, well, that sounds lovely. Well, let's dig in. We always start with our guests by asking about their backgrounds. So we know you trained in Germany and then went on to become this revered teacher in the industry. But tell us about how you got to jewelry in the first place. Well, I grew up in in Great Neck, New York, and studied like all kids do and did okay in school and went to college at the University of Virginia, where I took an art class. A lot of my family are artists, kind of part-time or semi-professional artists, and I liked it. So after Virginia, I was driving a taxi in Manhattan for the summer, getting ready for law school at Georgetown, and Woodstock came along. And I decided I didn't really want to go to law school anymore. I wanted to be an artist. So I took off on a Volkswagen bus for a year and landed in Mexico at the Instituto Allende. And I spent the next two years getting the basics of working in silver. I have a degree in sculpture from there. And from there, I just wanted more. So I went to Germany, spent two years there, really got a heavy dose. I worked 45 hours a week, plus every vacation and weekends for my teachers. I just absorbed it all and came back to the United States to move to San Francisco at that point in 1974 and, and started a whole new life. What a journey. Already that's like a lifetime's worth of experiences, it sounds like. Did, did you find, you said you went to Germany, was, was Germany kind of ahead of the United States at that point as far as jewelry design? Without a doubt. In, in the 70s, when I went there, Germany was not only the center of manufacturing for Europe, and the town I was in was Pforzheim, which was the center of German jewelry, but the teachers were celebrated masters. Uh, Klaus Ulrich and Reinhold Reiling were very prominent internationally, uh, had a great influence. A lot of the students were there who were in this program came from families where jewelers had been for generations and went on to do some really important, interesting things. Bernd Munsteiner was in that, probably know his name. Famous gem cutter, of course. Yeah, yeah. I think the most famous gem cutter who's ever lived. I think so. I'm curious, too, about Mexico. You kind of mentioned it. Was that Taxco or somewhere in the silver? No, that's a good guess, though. No, it's a, it was in San Miguel de Allende, which is a beautiful colonial village, now a city, at 7,400 feet that had a, a wonderful arts and crafts school called the Instituto Allende. It was like a working vacation. I worked real hard, but I played real hard. It was so much fun and learned Spanish. I learned to weave. I learned to throw clay and work in wood, ceramics, some carving of stone and gravitated right away toward jewelry. And it, it just clicked. It was like metal runs through my veins. I just, as soon as I picked up a piece of silver, it really was a transformation, I would say. Actually, my life just took a huge left turn away from academics and into the arts. Oh my God. So is it accurate to say you were kind of a hippie? I mean, Woodstock, you're cruising into Mexico, and this is the early 70s when I imagine it wasn't that common. 
You know, it, it, it's interesting. People ask that question. At the time, the definition of a hippie is different than it is now. At the time, a hippie was a free spirit who really didn't have a place to sleep that night and was just going with the flow. And really, there were a lot of people who were doing that. And I never did that. But when you look back, sure, I was a hippie. I, I'm still a hippie. I love it. It's very romantic. I mean, it's hard not to be sort of charmed by that lifestyle. It does feel like it's a little harder to do that these days. Well, I uh, I still have a 1979 Volkswagen camper, which I take to Mollus Bay and just, you know, get away from it all. Watch the birds for a few days. Wow. Well, so Germany, you come back, you head to San Francisco. And what do you do when you get there? First thing I did was get a job. My first job as a bench jeweler, lived in Oakland, worked in Oakland at a trade shop that did a lot of repairs. So it filled out a whole other aspect of my skill set. I studied art in Mexico, metal in Germany, and now repair and how to resize rings and custom orders. So I spent a year doing that. It was really fun. I just had a blast. I could have done it forever. I, I just love working with my hands. And then, uh, then I had an opportunity to teach a small class at the California College of Arts and Crafts, and that led to more classes in my own studio, and then a small a school in my in my home, and then San Francisco in 1979 into the jewelry building. There were 150 jewelry businesses in the building, and uh, opened up one room, Revere Academy of Jewelry Arts. Uh, I remember not thinking I would be able to pay the rent of $400 a month. And was it something that kind of caught on right away? Yes, it caught on right away. When I got back from Germany in 74, there were a lot of jewelers. There were a lot of freelance custom jewelers kind of coming up through the system. The market was really healthy for custom jewelry and artistic jewelry. And so there were a lot of people who wanted to learn what I had learned. And I wanted to show them. I had private students. I had students at CCAC. I started traveling, opened the school, started hiring people. And it just was straight ahead. I mean, over the years, I think we expanded physically in the building eight times. At some point, Otto Fry, the jewelry supplier, moved next to us. And it was like a perfect team because they could supply our students and we could provide a lot for them. And we had a lot of really strong years. We had up to 450 students a year. We sometimes had as many as 100 classes, mostly three-day and a few five-day classes. And then we had a master symposium uh, every April for the past 20 years and invited international people from all over to teach their specialty. A lot of very prominent people went through there. So I look back and it was some sort of miracle. It just all came together. I, I had a team that saw my vision and, and supported it. And it takes my breath away looking back, honestly. I think in the 70s, maybe I'm wrong because I was much younger then. It seemed like jewelry design was a little higher profile. Like when I just did the obit on Elsa Peretti and I saw that she had been on the cover of Newsweek, her creation. So it seemed like jewelry design was kind of more in the culture at that point. You're absolutely correct. I remember seeing a Time magazine with a centerfold of contemporary jewelers, some of whom you would know. Harold O'Connor was in there in Time magazine. When I started selling jewelry craft fairs, people were lined up outside for an hour to get in, and then they would line up two or three deep at some of the booths. There was a real market for it. We think of the 60s and 70s, a, a, a time when things changed a lot in the arts and in, in design. Was there kind of a new school of jewelry design that you believed in, or were you more in the traditional mode? In, in the early 60s, Contemporary jewelry started to come of age, I would say. Before that, 
it was just a few artists here and there, well-known people, but there were only a few of them. And hardly anybody was selling jewelry, actually, under their own names. And then in the 70s, things started to change. Jose Hess was the first person to have a line. It used to be called Flarecraft, and then he just changed it to Jose Hess. And then the trend started. Designer jewelers came up, were very popular. They figured out how to reach the market. There were different trends. There were different influences. There was the, the European trend, certainly a Southwest trend, traditional. There was experiments like, like Kretschmer and Michael Good, who just expanded into technical areas that had never been explored. The window was open for about 20 years, from about 74 to 94, for basically anything you could make. You could almost find a market for it. So you date that to 94. What happened in the mid-90s, other than I can imagine the introduction of CAD and CAM, or at least the very early days of those technologies, is, is that why you closed that window, that 20-year window in the mid-90s? I think that's part of it. I think also, at least when I was most successful there in the late 70s and 80s, my market was baby boomers uh, my age who were coming into their wealth. They had their homes, they had their kids, and now they wanted their stuff. And they would buy wonderful furniture and glass for thousands of dollars at these craft fairs that it seemed like just, you know, on a whim. I remember one customer I had, she came by with her husband for the third year to buy earrings from me. And they bought seven pairs of earrings for her. And the average was probably a few hundred dollars. Uh, they were high tech. They were just, you know, they had more money than they knew what to do with. And that's changed too. So many things have changed. And, and I feel so fortunate to have ridden the crest of the wave. And now uh, I get to look back at it. Did you teach CAD and CAM at the Revere Academy? And how do you look at those technologies and their domination, I would say now in, in the jewelry industry? That's another really good question. I've watched CAD CAM from the very, very beginning. We did offer a few different versions of that technology in our classes. Vaskin Tanielian became an expert. He was a master craftsman too. Personally, it doesn't interest me. I, I value it because it's so useful, but I, I'm a craftsman. I want to touch the materials. I don't want to touch a keyboard. Touching materials, touching a pencil, moving things around, for me, that's art. That's a full body experience. Do you think it's hurt the profession or do you think it's hurt the craft or the art of jewelry design? No, I don't think it's had an effect that way. I think it's just another tool, a set of tools, huge tool that lets people do things much, much easier without so much preparation, training, skill, understanding. But it's not for me. And, you know, I'm ready for the next question. I'd love to know, like of the students you worked with, what names stand out as people who went on to do things that you admire? Well, you know, I've just been assembling that information. A, a big one is Jim Binion, James Binion, early student. He's a metallurgist and a Mokumegane artist. Mary Lee Ray is an anomalist. A youngster who's come up recently is Dana Bronfman. Error. I've touched a lot of people. I've had a big influence on some people and a small influence on a lot of people. Here's a couple more. A man named Kirk Bloodsworth. Kirk Bloodsworth was the first convicted death row inmate to get released because of DNA evidence. He became one of my students and makes a line of jewelry for people who have also been exonerated. Very moving. Where is he based? Do you know? On the East Coast, I think Maryland, called MightyCause.com. It was a wonderful, I had an eight-week experience with him. He was a great guy. And one of the things I remember you told me a few years back was that you saw yourself as keeping this tradition of jewelry making, this ancient art, alive and kind of continuing it into the 20th century. 
from the very beginning, I knew. I didn't know where I was going, what was happening, but I knew that I was the keeper of the knowledge, that I was learning from people who had learned in the early 20th century at a level no longer exists. The teachers who taught me were far better than I am, far better. And I suspect their teachers might have been better too. So I was lucky. I got the tail end of all that and I brought it across the sea and I brought it across the millennium and just shared it. I I feel so fortunate. Given that Revere Academy closed, I believe at the end of 2017, so coming on four years, where would you send people? I mean, where do people go now to study the kind of craft and traditions that you taught? This is a question that I've always been asked. People would say, oh, I can't come to the Revere Academy. Where should I go? There's nothing like the Revere Academy. We offered more classes with more depth at a deeper level of craftsmanship than any place I know. Michael Boyd has a nice school in Pueblo, Colorado, more on the creative side. There's creative jewelry programs like Haystack and Penland. There's academic jewelry programs like Savannah College of Art and Design, Alberta College of Art, RISD. They're all different. The Revere Academy was able to blend the commercial side with the art side. We had a foot in both camps. But the answer I have is ask me in six months because I might have a real answer then. I don't want to let the uh, cat out of the bag, but I'm working on something that might be the answer to that question. Hmm. Okay. Well, that sounds intriguing. Do you want to talk about why you shut the school and your feelings about that? I have found in my life as I get older, timing is everything. Nothing happens before it's time and everything happens on time. If you go through life with that attitude, I think it's a little easier. What was happening at that point was a few things. I was getting older. I didn't really want to go and work that much. The rent was about to go from 7500 on Market Street to $10,000 a month for basically two rooms. And that wasn't going to work. And I didn't want to take it on. And I didn't want to have to you know, sign a lease for a million dollars, which is what it was going to be, 800 or something. So I, I gave it some thought and I, it just felt right. And one day I said, that's enough. That's enough. I'm going to figure out how to get out of this. I'm going to close the school slowly, properly, respectfully, let everybody know. I had a meeting with the staff. I thought about it for a while. And then I just decided I was going to close it. And then somebody said, why don't you sell it? And I thought, well, duh, I hadn't really thought of that. I never really ever thought of that. So at that point, I made it kind of public. I put it up on the market. This was late in 17. And I had 20 or 30 interested parties, came down to a few, came down to a few with money. And I decided I didn't want it to sell, even though the money was there, because my name was attached to it. I would always be attached to it. If they didn't do it as well as I did, I would be upset. If they did it better, I'd be thrilled. But I and I didn't think that the, the it didn't work. And so I just closed it. And then things started to happen. I got interested. We moved here and got into the place. And then all of a sudden, this amazing thing happened that never could have happened before. Six people on Facebook decided that they wanted to make the projects from my book, Professional Jewelry Making. And they were in different cities and they thought they'd all do it together. And they invited me to join the group as the seventh member. And now two and a half years later, we've run through the book twice and there's 21,000 members in 150 countries. And every day we're posting things and we're going through the book and I'm engaged and I'm teaching and loving what I'm doing and doing it at a safe distance. And it's the silver lining I never could have imagined. Are you making jewelry at home now too? I mean, do you have a bench and do you work on that regularly? I do. It's, it's, it's less than six feet from me. It's a beautiful little bench. I haven't really done much, but I've got two pieces on my bench that I need to do within the next six weeks or so. One is a commission. 
and one is a, a, the annual project for the American Jewelry Design Council. I, I put a lot into that. So I, I'm part of a group called the American Jewelry Design Council, AJDC.org. And it's a group of about 30 of the most talented jewelry designers in the country. And every year we do a few things. We have a, a retreat somewhere. We have a, um, a show with projects that we make with a theme. And the theme last year was Together. That's one project. And the other one is a, a very personal project for one of my teachers who lost her husband and wanted me to make something out of their wedding rings. But she wanted me to make something that wouldn't be identifiable. That would be for her. So I couldn't really leave the rings intact. So I found a photograph of them facing each other. And I'm using the silhouette of the negative space between them to cut the form out of his band, which I rolled flat into a sheet and still has the texture. And then I'm taking the diamond for her ring and putting it where their hearts meet on this pendant. The way you've described jewelry design, at least to me at times, is kind of in that Zen way that it's something that you really lose yourself in. Yeah, it's a zone. It's a zone. I can feel it anytime. I can go there anytime. It's like it's a faucet and I can just turn it on and turn it off. Some people can do that. Some people are always there. Some people are never there. I think what it is, I'm not really sure, is I, I go totally onto the, my right brain totally into feelings and sensations and visions and uh, leave words behind. So what do you see as the future of jewelry design and as a, of the art that you feel so passionate about? Yeah, I knew you would ask that. And I was hoping nobody would ever ask me that because I'm an expert on the past, but I don't know anything more about the future than anybody else. And, and I'm not even that in touch with what's going on right now. I can tell you something that I learned and that is, the desire to learn how to make jewelry by hand is far from dead. It's alive. And jewelry making is so special in so many ways, so many ways that are unique from any other experience of artistic creativity. So the future, I'm, I'm not sure. I just can't read the future. I just don't know. What, what, what do you think is uh, special about jewelry design? Well, a whole bunch of things. I mean, I could probably name, name 10 uh, at least. One is it's one of the oldest crafts. It's as old as glass, at least 7,000 years old, working in precious metals. We work with the elements that come from the earth. It's really easy to retrieve them. I can go up into the gold country, spend a few hours, find a little gold, purify it, and, and, and make something out of it that will last forever. Nothing else lasts forever. Metal lasts forever. You know, the metals we work in are not degraded by nature. So something I create will last forever. That's not true about something you can create in wood or glass or leather or even a canvas. You have to really go and destroy it. Here's another one. Uh, there's a great variety of ways of working in the metal. You can cast it. You can forge it. You can make it on CAD cam. You can spin it, turn it, press it, do all these things. There's more tools than any other trade for sure. My son's a glass blower. He has five tools. Basically, I have hundreds. People save their jewelry. Nobody throws jewelry away. People easily get rid of pottery or glass or silverware or other things, but nobody throws away jewelry and they pass it on from generation to generation and they repair it. Who repairs a broken glass or a broken pot? Nobody. And it goes up in value and has intrinsic value. You can't take pottery and get a penny out of it, but jewelry always has its value. And personally, I feel extremely connected to everybody who's ever worked in metal especially uh, people who went before me. It's just, it, like I said, more and more I realize these things in my life. There's some sort of, sort of metal that runs in my veins because even as a child, the first thing I collected, coins. After that, 
guns because I like the metal work on them. And then toy cars because they were metal. I love this idea of metal connecting makers around the world and throughout time. Certainly it, it does endure and it will endure long after we do. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your love and your insights and your your passion and obviously your knowledge for, for all the wonderful people you've taught. It's really great to have you on, Ellen. And do you want to tell about the Facebook group? Oh, okay. Yes. The Facebook group is called Let's Make Professional Jewelry. And you go there and we ask you a few questions and then you just sign up and then I approve you. And uh, the one rule that nobody can violate is you can't sell anything, nothing. And you can't show anything that's not related to the book, which is one of the reasons people really like it. It's highly focused. There's no chatter. There's no noise. It's just about the projects in the book. Well, let's make glory. All right. Let's do it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Alan. Thanks, Alan. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Thank you.